Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. Uh, this morning, as I record, Roger Moore died. Now, I never grew up as a big uh, James Bond guy. I know a lot of my friends love Bond. You know, some said Moore was the best. Some said Connery was the best. A few of them like Dalton. It goes around the corn. But I'm just thinking what his life must have been before, during and after he played Bond. Because you think about it, as an actor to play a role that big, the women must have been coming on to him left and right. Because if you think about it, like a guy who played Urkel, he can go out in L.A. and he played a nerd on character. And you know the women were just hitting on him because he's a star. But could you imagine playing James Bond, the amount of women that would just throw themselves at you? Anyway... We have, a, we, have a, we have a great guest today. I've known this guy for a long time. He basically does everything, man. Uh, to be honest, he uh, he, he, hosts, uh, he hosts, hosts TV shows. He has a podcast. He's an international stand-up headlining comic. Has a podcast. Everything, my guess, is Jim Florentine. How you doing, Jim? What's going on, man? Not much. Now, were, were you a Bond guy, or, or you weren't really into that, or what? Um, no, I remember seeing him as a kid, but I never really got into it after after a while. You know, like, uh, I guess it was more when I saw those, you know, when they used to be, you know, when the guy was actually a guy, right. didn't have to act like a pussy, you know? <laughs> you know, all of a sudden the guy couldn't have, like, three different girlfriends and sleep with somebody and, then, you know, have another one on the side and, you know, all over, you know, then they had to make them politically correct. I got to ask you about that because, you know, you're, I've, I've known you for a long time and your act has always been, you know, very honest, edgy. And I'm guessing you're not the, the friend of the millennials. What do you see in the difference in crowds since you started in the late 80s, early 90s, when it was, and you started in North Jersey, which, you know, in, in the East Coast, you can just say what you want. Have you seen the crowds change since you've been doing stand-up over the years? And if so, in what way? Well, I remember, you know, I remember in 1993 when I did my first college, one of those SUNY colleges up in Albany or somewhere around there, I said the word chick, and they didn't want to pay me because they said I was sexist. So this has been going on a long time, especially the college kids, you know what I mean? They think they're going to change the world, that everything's great, and all this, and you know, as a white male comic, you're, you're, you know, you better watch what you say on stage, and this has always been going on at the college, and it's still to this day. I don't see too much in the crowds different. It's just the young people. Like, you know, they're, in college, they're going to change the world and do all this, you know. And, you know, Bernie Sanders is going to give everything away for free and they're going to they have to pay for anything. Like, oh, my God, we're going to vote for this crazy old man. But once they get married and have kids and move to the suburbs, they realize, All right, you know what, this, you know, I just want to make a few bucks, have a few laughs at the end of the day, and, you know. And that's it. You know what I mean? Like they don't, they don't, they, they realize they're not going to change the world. They just kind of fit in, and they become less politically correct once they get out into the real world. Now, do you play colleges anymore, or do you avoid them? No, I haven't done colleges in years. I, I didn't want to write my act because you basically have to write an act for college. You know what I mean? You had to. You, so I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to write an act towards a, a you know, to play colleges. I didn't want to write an act towards you know performing on a, on a cruise ship or any of that stuff. You know, I just wanted to play in comedy clubs. I knew the the, great, the most great money in the colleges. I lasted like two years doing colleges, and then I just had enough. I'm like, I'm not doing this shit. Now, how'd you get into stand-up? What was, what was your path? Because, you know, you started probably in your young 20s. What was your path to getting to stand-up? Um, you know, I started doing morning radio, and I liked that. And that's what I wanted to do, be a DJ on the radio. I was always interested in comedy. And then when I, when I realized I couldn't say what I wanted to say... 
you know, just crack a joke. I wasn't even trying to be like Howard Stern. Just, you know, you know, crack a jokes in between some songs here and there. And they were like, no, don't say that. You don't want to offend anybody. Don't say that. I'm like, you know, I should just go up on stage and try this. I know I'm not going to, you know, no one's going to tell me what I could do and what I can't do. And then once, you know, once I got the guts up to do it, I wrote a bunch of stuff that still took me about a year before I actually went on stage. You know, because you're behind a microphone DJ and you have no audience. You don't have to worry about a reaction. You don't know if it worked or not. And you don't, you know, and all of a sudden you got to live and die by every joke and just performing in public. So, you know, public speaking. So once I got up there, I liked it. I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. Now, how was your first night? Everyone, you know, everyone, I always talk to comics with different uh, experiences. Some killed the first night and then bombed the second night. Some killed the first night, killed the second night, bombed the third night. Some just sucked and then they got out of business. But how was your first night? And, and did you have you know, any hard I, sets? I know. I, I remember how it was. I bombed, but I got. I remember I got a laugh because some guy heckled me. It was an open mic and some guy said something and I said something back and I got this huge laugh, and I just remember that dead adrenaline from that laugh. And now, you know, you're going 100 miles an hour your first time on stage, you don't even realize if you're doing well or not. Like, you just, you think, you know, a few people chuckled, so you're like, oh, okay, they're, they're digging this. You know, and you, and then, but then someone heckled me, I got a big laugh, I'm like, oh man, I felt great, and I was like, this is definitely what I wanted to do, and then I realized, you know, I gotta really just focus and start writing and concentrate on, on you know, jokes. Well, you've run into this too. I'm sure we all have, you know, especially when, you know, when you've been in it for a while, you always run into that guy who's been doing comedy for two years and he tells you he has 45 minutes and, you know, you know, the whole crap. He's, you know, oh yeah, I'm a headliner. It's like, you've been doing comedy for two years. Come on. When did you start feeling like you started to hit your stride as a working comic? Well, I was lucky enough to like run an open mic in Jersey where like on a Monday night where. Um, I could pay one headliner like 150 bucks was the budget. I'd give it to the headliner. So I met guys like Rich Moss, uh, Bob Levy, uh, guys like that that were Otto and George that were around for a while already and were headliners in their own right. And then they would they took a liking to me and would take me on the road to open. You know, I had like 10 minutes, so I would do like 10 minutes up front for like 25 bucks. But they already all, there was a bunch of one-nighters and a bunch of clubs that they were in. They go, I'm going to bring this guy, just pay him 25 bucks over 10 minutes. And I used to drive them or whatever. So I got in, so I was, you know, plugging away early, you know, just getting to clubs. But it took me a while, but I, but I started in the shitty rooms. I started at the B and the C rooms, the, the firehouse, the BFWs, the sports bars, and built up my act that way. So when I was ready, if anything ever happened, I had, you know, a solid 45 minutes after, you know, seven, eight years. I, I'd say about year seven, I had a good 45, decent 45 minutes. So you get to 45. Now, when do you start getting booked as a headliner? And they always say, you know, a lot of times they say you have to leave your area and then come back to move up. You know, like in Philadelphia, if you sat there, it was hard to move up the chain because they always thought of you as a Philly act. How did you get to that level where after seven years you had the time where you started to get the headlining gigs? Um, you know, there was always these little bookers that had these little rooms that if you work cheap, you know, $300 for the weekend to do a Friday and a Saturday, the headline, they would book you. So I was always doing those little, little rooms, a holiday Inn, or, you know, like I said, or, you know, a lot of stuff in like the middle of Pennsylvania where the star for entertainment, these little towns. So I always did that route and, and just built it up that way where I, you know, if I had 45 minutes in a firehouse, that meant I had like 20 to 25 good minutes <laughs> in a real club, like an improv yeah. or a, the rascals or a funny bone. Do you remember a book? And this just came to my mind. Do you remember guys that 
a guy named Irv Silverstein or something Silverman. and Casey and they had a partner and they never yeah. they never paid. I remember they bounced a check for me and Irv Silverman looked like Larry David and I remember they, he always had a story and uh, I wonder what ever happened to them. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I know that I I think I forget what happened to Irv. I know he took off and just with people's money and stuff like that. But Casey was around for a little while. Those are some of the guys that I were. I remember those two were guys that I worked for that had these little rooms, and you know they would they go all right. You know the budget was that you know the, the Holiday Inn would give them a thousand dollars to put on a weekend show, and they would pay out like five hundred dollars, and they would pocket five hundred. <laughs> you know, and, and they, or they or they'd give them fifteen hundred a pocket a grand if they could be these five hundred total, and they would never tell you you wouldn't collect the money at the end of the night. But that was always a bad sign when. When the booker said, "Don't worry, I'll send you a check," yeah, because they didn't want the comedy club to know the place how much they were paying the comedians because they would have went crazy. <laughs> so then they would send you a check like two weeks later, hopefully. What is what is your worst story with a booker? Because you've been on the road and you've played great clubs and you've played. We've all started off in shitty clubs. What would you say is your worst story with a booker that was trying to screw you out of money who just gave you the runaround? Well, there was a lot. You know, sometimes you would show up for like a one night or somewhere, like on a Thursday night at a bar, and there'd be 10 people there, and a guy go, oh, look, we can't do a show. No one showed up. I go, oh, well, you got to give us the money. And like, no. I go, well, at least give it, you know, usually the rule of thumb is you get half the money. You know, if you were making $150 for the night on a Thursday, they got to give you at least $75. If there's no show, you drove two hours or whatever. And they're like, no, I got no, you know, I got no money. I could really, I don't have any money. If there's nobody here, I'm not going to have money. I could really, so you don't have a bank. You don't have any money in the register. You don't have a bank. You can go get the money at. You just have no money. So every, you, you live day to day. Is that how you do it? I, and then I would always say, look, if this place was packed, you wouldn't get the extra money. Right. So I don't want to hear it that there's only 10 people in here. Now, I was, I, I was flipping around serious today, and I've actually listened to your uh, metal uh, midgets the, on the Aussie station. Uh, you're, you're a big fan of metal. Have you always been a metal fan? And what year did you start getting in metal? And then, you know, what drove you to listen to metal? Yeah, well, you know, I had two older brothers that were like four and five years older than me. So, you know, I did, when they were started driving at 17, I was, what, 12, 13 or whatever, I would be in the back seat. They would just be driving around. And they were just cranking heavy metal the whole time, Black Sabbath, ACDC, Aerosmith, you know, Judas Priest. And so I had no choice but to get into it because that's all I heard. And they would take me to concerts. So like, no, you know, I'm like, man, I just wanted to get out of the house. That was great. And they would take me these, you know, I saw ACDC with Bon Scott as like a 12-year-old. My brothers took me to and stuff. So I was seeing amazing shows, you know, early on. I just, you know, once you, once you, once that's ingrained in your head, that's it. And then I grew up in Jersey, like the middle of Jersey and everybody else in it in the town and the high school I went to, they were all into metal too. So it was easier to like that stuff. So when did you start incorporating that into your act? And then it's, it's you know, you've done a lot with metal. When did that all start happening? I never really incorporated too much. I mean, I had long hair when I started, so I looked like, you know, David Coverdale or, for, you know, Sammy Hagar, you know, because I was into the music and stuff. But then I eventually cut it. I didn't really talk about music too much because I'm like, you know, in the 90s, nobody cared about heavy metal. It was all about grunge and everything else. You know, uh, the 80s is when, you know, you could talk about Motley Crue and Rat and all that. So, um, but then I started opening for like, then I got a TV, a gig on a TV show called That Metal Show where I was hosting it. Where, you know, it was like a heavy metal talk show. And then I started doing more like rock venues and I would open for metal bands. You know, but I didn't change my act too much. I didn't talk about metal, you know, just more, you know, quick jokes and stuff like that. It's a different crowd. 
I just opened for this band Stone Sour uh, last week, 2,200 people, you know, just there to see a rock show. And, you know, they're not easy because, they, you know, they, you know they're, they're, they'll listen. They kind of know who you are. Some of them, you know, half the room or whatever like that. But, but it's still, it's not a comedy club. you got to rush. And I, you know, when people yell stuff out, I, 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 a lot of times I can't let it go because I'm so used to being a comedy club. I go, what? You know, being defensive about it instead of just, you know, trying to silence that person that in a big venue, sometimes it throws me off when people are yelling because they just want to see the band. And I get that. I understand. Um, but, you know, those are challenges. But, you know, when I was before this show, there's 2,200 people and it's sold out. And I'm like, why am I doing this? I'm saying to myself, why can't I just be in a, a, the, the stand comedy club in New York City? It holds 80 people. They're right on top of you in a little basement. That's where I love being. I'm like, why do I do this to myself? You know, I always, I always doubt that. But then I want the challenge. I love the challenge of doing it. Now, how did that show go? Because I mean, it's you know, it's just 2,200. Did you? How, how much time were you doing before the band? 15 minutes. And for you, it now, must, it must be hard doing 15 because you're used to doing longer sets. Yeah, you got to combine a lot of stuff. You got to, you know, you can't really tell stories because you might lose them. Um, it went, it went good. Don Jameson, who's a buddy of mine, went on first. He did fifteen, and then I did fifteen after him. So it was thirty minutes of comedy before the band. But luckily, we had the lead singer of the band, who's also the singer of the band, is also in Slipknot. He's a singer of Slipknot. He's really popular, Corey Taylor. So we convinced him. We're friends with him. Hey, man, could you go out there and introduce us? You know, just say that we're a comedian because they didn't advertise that we were on the show. So no one knew that there was, you know, me and Don James were going to open up for the band. So we go, is there any way you could go out there and just tell us, hey, man, I got some buddies here. They're going to do some comedy before. Because, yeah, I'll do that. And it made it so much easier. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you get the metal show? How did that all come about? And it was on for a long time. And I know now it still replays, I believe. And uh, how, yeah. did, how did it all come about? And uh, was it, like, for you a great gig just for the fact that you love that music and be able to meet all those people? Yeah, well, you know, me and Don Jameson would do gigs, you know, on Friday and Saturday night. We drive, like a Friday night, we'd be driving home in the Tri State area. And Eddie Trunk was uh, a, a DJ on, on the Q104, the classic rock station. On Friday nights, he'd have a heavy metal show, like it'll start at 11 o'clock at night. So me and Jameson would be driving home from a gig late at night, and we'd be listening, like, man, you know, it wasn't like, you know, he'd play like, you know, deep cuts and rare stuff. And I'm like, man, this, like, this guy's great. How do we not know him? You know what I mean? This is he's playing the same music that we like. And I've actually met him one time at a concert. And he goes, Hey man, you know, you should come up with my radio show, sit in. I like what comics sit in. You guys know the music. And then he he was already working at VH1. He goes, I'm gonna pitch a show of us three doing a talk show. And I'm like, Yeah, he goes, Oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna see what happens with that. And he pitched it and they took it, we did a pilot and then we wound up doing, you know, uh we're on the air for what? It's seven years and hundred and thirty episodes. Now, why do you think it lasted so long? Because there are a lot of metal fans, but as you say, it's it's a different format. And with three hosts, which no one's really used to that. What do you think gave it the lasting power? Because seven years is, is a long time, and that many episodes is a lot. They left, they left us alone. We were on a little shitty channel that barely, you know, they didn't even care about ratings. They would just replay the show over and over again, so they would make their money back eventually. And, you know, so we weren't, we were, you know... They left us alone, basically. It was like the redheaded stepchild of VH1. We were on VH1 Classic. So that, that's how, that's why it lasted that long. Because if we were on, like, you know, just say we got, for some reason, we got on Fox and we were following American Idol 
and we had the bass player from Rat on after that audience, that we'd be done. We'd be off the air in two episodes. So I think that they just left us alone, and then they would just play the shit out of those shows over and over again. Like if you put on uh, True TV, all just all the only episode, the only thing that's on there is the Practical Joker reruns. Right. It's the same thing. They just play that stuff over and over again, and it still gets ratings. People tune in. You know, people would say, "Oh man, I watched that show with uh, you know that you know Tony Elmi from Black Sabbath like nine times. Every time it's on, I watch the same one. So it's the same thing with our show. So I think that's why it lasted that long." Now, who was who were some of the people you really looked forward to interviewing? And was there anyone that you were just nervous because you were a really big fan of? Yeah, it was a lot. Every year, you know, every season there was a different one. You know, we had Angus Young and Brian Johnson off of ACDC. We interviewed Axel. You know, it was first Axel's first TV interview in like 20 years. We did, um, you know, Tony Alma from Black Sabbath, Marilyn Manson. I'm a big Manson fan. Tom Morello from Raging Against the Machine. Like, Every season, there was somebody new. I'm like, I can't believe this guy's going to be on a show. We're going to be, you know, interview all the guys from Metallica did our show. So it was great. How would you prep for the interviews? I wouldn't because I'm like, I've been wanting to ask Lars from Metallica this question for 20 years. (laughs) Okay, so you're doing all this stuff. Now, then you also, when did you get into the telemarketing things? Because that's, you know, you have a bunch of CDs for that. I mean, you go to your website, people go to jimflorentine.com. He's got a ton of stuff, got a ton of stuff there. How did you get into the whole telemarketing thing? You know, that was just a thing where, you know, I'm doing comedy, I don't know, comedy like six, seven years, you know, just. I'm doing gigs at night, and I got, you know, I'm off during the day. I was barely making enough money to get by, and I was home during the day, so I would just mess with telemarketers when they would call. I'd try to keep on the phone as long as possible, because I had nothing else going on. Like, I wasn't going on auditions or whatever. I didn't have a day job, so, and then I just started recording them one day. I go, let me just see what's going on. You know, maybe I'm onto something, and I put a CD out, and next thing I know, Howard Stern started playing it on his radio show, and the thing just blew up. And it was, I, I just put it out to get my name out there. I'm like, ah, maybe I'll sell a few after a show. You know, I mean, people reckon, you know, get, you know, start, start getting a little following by it. I didn't think it was going to lead to anything. Now, when Stern played it and you said it started blowing up, after a while, did you start seeing an increase in people coming to your comedy shows to see you? Did you get that name recognition? Yeah, I mean, I remember doing, um, I used to always feature, I was the feature actor at the Funny Bone in Pittsburgh. I would do it twice a year, every six months. I would get $500, $100 a show, and they put it be up in the shitty condo. And I was doing it for like six, seven years, and they wouldn't put me in a headliner. You know, it was just tough to move up. You know how it is. So all of a sudden, Howard Stern decides to start, starts playing my stuff, and they invite me in to be a guest on the show. They want me to sit in on the show for two mornings in a row like a Thursday and a Friday, and my manager calls the funny bone up and goes, look, Jim's going to be on Howard Stern for two days. They're going to plug they, they, He's going to plug him, you know, constantly where he's going to be. I want I let Jim headline the improv, uh, the funny bone in Pittsburgh, give him 1500 bucks for five shows. And that, that the book is like, no way. He, he, he makes 500. He goes, look, you're going to get plugged for two days. He goes, and if he gets a bonus, he goes, I'm telling you, he goes, Howard Stern, you know, they knew Howard Stern was huge. He goes, he goes, give him $500 uh, an uh, extra show if he sells out. He goes, okay, fine, 1500 I want those plugs for two days. I went on there, signed up for two days. I sold out five shows. So was that one of you? I walked out of there. I walked out of there with four thousand dollars, which is amazing, just because the power of radio. Because you know, a lot of times, I mean, Stern's one of the only shows. You know, how it is a lot of times shows don't have that juice. You know, people always do morning radio when they're on in a town, but 
people have decided to go to those towns to see comedy. But when Stern pumps you up, it makes he has so many uh, amazing loyal following. They're probably like, we got to go see this guy. Especially when he was still on K Rock back in the day, he was on regular radio, so he was syndicated into Pittsburgh. You know, so you know you weren't getting a lot of people from the Stern. Howard Stern was never going to Pittsburgh to do an appearance. You know, no one really was. So if you had a comic that was on there, you know, and he was so big in Pittsburgh, he was the number one in a lot of markets. And Pittsburgh was a big market for him. And then you know, I guarantee ninety percent of the people that came to that show that, that weekend had no idea who I was, but they heard me on that. Oh, we got to go see this guy. Now, do you feel a little bit of pressure for that when you sit there and your your manager just got you a bunch of money? It means you're going to have to deliver. Well, you know, like I said, I I I, I honed that 45 minutes in those in those uh, BFW halls and the firehouse and the sports bar, so I was ready for it. I had a 45 minutes. I had a good solid 45 minutes, no problem. I'm probably doing comedy nine years at this point, nine ten years. So I had an act. I wasn't like you know a guy that won a talent show and had 15 minutes and tried to try to sketch it to 45, you know, so I was ready for it. So as you start headlining more and more and more, when do you start to sit there and drop old material out and bring in new material? And do you constantly try to do that? I mean, when do you sit there and start saying, okay, these people come are coming to see me because you have a brand, you know, especially when people knew you from Stern, you're going to get repeat people coming to see you. And you know, it's the worst when you go see, I mean, you know, comics we know who've been doing comedy for 25 years and they're still doing the same bits from 20, they're doing Reagan impressions, you know what I mean? 20 years ago. When did you sit there and start really learning to change up your act? See, I would always get bored with my act, you know, after a while. So I was always, I, I always, I was always from the beginning, always writing new jokes and trying to put some new stuff in. You know, some nights I had to do the greatest hits, you know, to get by or whatever. But a lot, I was always trying to work new stuff in. You know, because I, I once I get bored with the material, it just doesn't work anymore. The crowd can feel it, I can feel it. So I was, you know, I always loved a set where if I did thirty minutes, say. And, and if I did like four new minutes and it worked pretty good, I was always like that. To me, that was like, you know, that was amazing for me. I'm like, perfect. I got, you know, stuff I could work on. I got some laughs. I'd always record my set so I'd listen back to them, you know, especially when I was doing new stuff to figure out, you know, how I worded and all that stuff. So I always like mixing in new stuff and taking out old stuff. Now, in your act, when you were, you know, you were, you were branching up the headlining, when did you record your first CD? Because now it seems like, I swear to God, especially living in L.A., when I, well, I don't live, I live in New Jersey now, but when you live in L.A., it's like every post on Facebook is, people are sitting there going, oh, I'm recording my CD, and they're recording it at like a freaking coffee house, you know what I mean? And it's people who've been doing comedy for five years, and they probably have 25 minutes of material. When did you decide, because you started recording CDs before people were really recording them, when did you, just, when did you record your first CD? I think my first one, I actually, I took a little while to put it, you know, I had, I put a telemarketer CD out of prank calls before I even did a stand up CD. I think 2000, probably 10 years in, I was, I put my first, uh, stand up CD out. And then about three years later, I put a second one out. So I did wait about 10 years before I put one out, but I had, I had two, I think I had two telemarketer CDs out before I even put a stand up disc out. Now, when you did your stand-up CD, how did you pick the venue, your first one? How did you pick the venue you performed at? And how many, you know, did you sit there and t record two nights and edit it? Or how did you do it? Yeah, you know what I did? I You you would know the place, uh, uh, Andy Scarpati. 
Comedy Cabaret in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Pocos, above Pocos. <laughs> yes, that's where I filmed my first CD because, I mean, recorded my first CD because I knew that, you know, the Philly crowds were always great. They were big Stern, Stern fans and stuff like that. I knew always, and that was a great room. It was small, upstairs and stuff. And, the, you know, that was perfect blue-collar crowd for me. And my buddy brought a recording system down. We did the one show Friday, one Saturday, and we just mixed the two. Now, when you got it done, were you happy with the work? And then, what did you go with it? Did you start? Where did you start selling it besides shows? Um, no, I, yeah, I just put it out myself. It wasn't on a label or anything. I just sold it at my shows and on my website. And now, when did you decide you were ready to do a second CD? The second one was probably, I think, three or four years later is when I recorded the next one. You know, when I had all you know different material, when I had about fifty minutes. I think about 50, I didn't even, it wasn't even an hour, it was about 50 minutes. I did, decided to record my second one, I put that out myself too, on my own, you know. You know, because look, when you perform in front of, you know, you know, over the weekend, five or six shows in an improv or a funny bone, you're probably in front of, I don't know, even if there's 200 people at a show, you got 1,200 people that just saw you if they liked you, and you got a product, you know, after the show, you have to sell them, they'll buy it, 10 bucks, a piece of cake. You know, so I'm like, I don't, what do I need a label for? Where they're going to, you know, they might give you a little event. You know, I remember Comedy Central wanted to give you no advance and then they would give you like 50% or not even, I don't even know what it was. It was a really shitty deal. So I'm like, fuck that. I don't need them. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, you know even back in the day when people bought CDs to find a comedy CD in, in the store, in the record, in the CD store, it was all in the back, back by the gospel, you know, whatever. Like, no, you, could, you couldn't even find it. So you get your CDs now. Now you just came out with a, a new CD. How long ago did you come out with that? Well, yeah, that was a comedy special I put out. It's also an audio version of it. Uh, in December, I put it out. Okay. Now, now, how did you? Uh, how has your act changed for this? I know. Now, I know. Also, before this, you did a one man show, I believe, in LA. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, how did that come about? Because you know, you're a stand up and one man show. There's more of a serious arcs. Where did you get the idea for the one man show? And, uh, and what made you decide to do it? And how is that as a writing process for you, for a guy who is a true stand-up? Well, you know, I wanted, I, I was, I did a whole, well, it was pretty much my life story, but the theme was I was always, I always dated troubled women. That was the theme. And, you know, I went through my whole life about this and that or whatever. And I had a, a situation in my life where my ex-girlfriend took her own life. And it, it, I, I, I said I wanted to tell her in a story somehow, and but I knew it wouldn't work on stage in a regular comedy club. So let me see if I, you know, so I was always interested in a one-man show. I always liked that. You know, you don't have to get a laugh every two seconds. I know how to do that. You know what I mean? I always said I could, I could do that. So I wanted to do a more of a storytelling show. So I just, I want to brighten the whole story and, you know, do, do a slideshow and everything else and told the whole story about what happened and how I recovered from it and everything. But I knew... It was a better piece in a, in a little theater than it was going to be in a comedy club because it wasn't going to work there. Now, how do you delve into your soul and write stuff like that? Because it's really, it's I mean, it's therapeutic and it's cathartic, but it must be hard to write something like that because people do expect to come in and laugh. And when you hit them in the head with, you know, different things that happen, people sometimes don't know how to react to that. Whereas, what, as a, how did you, you know, get there as a writer well i mean there was laughs in it though you know what i mean right. that wasn't the whole story but it was you know it, there was funny pictures of me growing up and this and that and all so 
you know, there was laughs and it was just more of stories than set up punch, set up punch, set up punch, set up punch. You know, so, um, I know I just said, look, there's a one man show. It's different from a stand up show, you know, and then, you know, some people might have walked away disappointed. I don't know. But then other people just didn't really enjoy it. You know, it's like, okay, people could sit there for, you know, three, you know, two, three minutes without getting a laugh if you're telling a good story, a poignant story. So that's the way I, I approached it. And how was, how was the feedback on it? Did people enjoy it? Yeah, the feedback was good. You know, um, uh, yeah, it was really good. And I just wound up, you know, putting it out. I was trying to get, you know, Comedy Central was interested at first, but then they were like, ah, it's a little too serious for us to air. It's like, oh, so God forbid, you know, for fucking two, two minutes, people don't laugh. Right. You know, I see some of the shit you guys put on there, you know, there's, there's nine minutes go by without anyone, any laughs. So, but whatever. So I just wind up releasing that myself too. I'm like, no big deal. I got an audience, you know, so, and you know, I got a little fan base, so they'll, they'll enjoy it. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I never waited around for the industry. I'm like, I'll just do it myself then. Now you have a fan base. What, how would you describe a, a Jim Florentine fan? How, what, what is, what do you think is your fan is? And has it changed over the years as you've gotten older and matured? Um, yeah, well, you know, with that metal show it was a whole other audience. You know, dudes that were in the metal, you know, 40-year-old males that were in the metal, that was our demo when I watched the show. You know, they had no idea that I even did, half of them had no idea I even did comedy. Like, they didn't even know I was a stand-up comic. They did, that was completely off their radar. So when I started hosting the show, like, oh, this guy does stand-up? That's where I got to go see him. He's coming to my town. I got to see what he does up there. You know, so, all, you know, I would know those guys. You know, it would be like three guys in an Iron Maiden shirt sitting right in the front row. I'm like, okay, I know where they know me from. You know, all these, you know, all of a sudden all these long haired dudes are showing up my show. So, but then before that, when I was on Crank Anchors, I would get a whole Comedy Central audience coming to my show. So it was a little bit, you know, a little bit of both. But I don't know if it's really changed over the years. You know, it's, uh, you know, um, it's probably, you know, I always, I always liked an older crowd. Because we were like, oh man, it's an older crowd out there, meaning, you know, uh, 35 to 55. Like, oh man. I'd much rather the younger crowd. I go, I don't want those kids. I don't want those 19-year-old kids. Like we talked about earlier, those are the kids that are sensitive. You know, I'd rather an older crowd that's already lived and been through some shit and just, you know, understands it's a joke. It's not going to take it personally. It is It is funny because I, I haven't done stand-up a lot lately, but uh, I just, I hosted for Matt Arise at uh, Helium uh, two weekends ago. And it's funny, the crowd difference. Like the early crowd Saturday was older and they were just amazing. Because, you know, and you're right, Philly crowds are great. They, you know, you can say anything. They don't get their panties in a tussle. They, they enjoy hard-hitting comedy and just funny comedy. But at night, the crowd's a little bit older on Saturday. And I mean, younger. And it is true. It's a difference. It's like they sit there. They don't want to relax. It's like you come to a comedy club to laugh. No, and God forbid Joe's on stage bitching about his wife. Some of the younger people are like, that's mean. Right. How can he say that about women? That's terrible, you know. He's talking about his wife. Like, that's how the way they look at it. The older crowd that's been married 15, 20 years, they can laugh at each other. Yeah, I know. I'm like that. Absolutely. Whatever it is, you know. So, no, I always I always like an older crowd. Now, how do you think your writing style has changed over the years? Because, like, your, your latest, your latest uh, I call it CD, CD, the, you know, A Simple Man, compared to your earlier ones, how's your, have you evolved and has your views on things changed or do you sit there and pretty much try to keep, you know, you pretty much had the same viewpoint and writing style your whole career? Um, no, I've got definitely gotten more honest on stage. 
um, you know, just talking about my real life. I was, you know, I always reveal a little of it and do more jokes or you just, you know, kind of make up a story that was funny or something like that. But then around when I did the one-man show, probably, you know, I don't know, probably about 10 years ago, 11 years ago when I really started, 12 years ago, so I really started to just, you know, so I got to write about my life, what's going on in my life. And then I didn't worry about it. I go, I don't care if, you know, someone someone else is, did the same kind of topic about whatever it is. I go, this is my personal experience, so I don't give a shit. You know, so I never worried about that. I go, this is what happened to me, so I'm going to talk about it. Now, you know, there's tragedy happened yesterday and people are putting, you know, some people are putting really lame Facebook jokes up. Do you feel like any subject's taboo or, or, or and do you sit there, would you make a comment about the bombing or do you find that it's just, just not funny to you or how would you handle a situation like that? No, I don't, I don't, you know, it's so easy to attack. And I know when you're a young comic, you, you want to be outrageous, you know, so you're going to go, oh, you're going to make a joke right away. Oh, you know, I would, I, you know, like whatever it's going to be, you know, she stinks anyway. So I, you know, I'd rather die to be at that show, whatever it's going to be, you know, so I get that comments that want to be rebels and stuff like that, but I don't, I don't knock anybody for it. And I'm like, I'm not talking to that guy anymore. I know where they're coming from. That's just, I've never been that where I'm going to go, okay, I'm going to, you know, especially something like that, you know, if it's, if it's something about like Bill Cosby or something like that, it, I, you know, I, I'll, I, I don't like to jump on jokes right away because I know everybody else is doing like, I don't even talk about Trump on stage. I go, why? Because I go on last on the show. So, okay. Okay. So the first three guys before me talked about Trump. Well, here's my angle. You know, I don't know. I just, uh, it, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't attack, but I don't, I don't fault the comic for doing it. I don't know, get mad at them at whatever subject they want to tackle, even though I wouldn't. Yeah, I know exactly what they're doing. Okay, I want to be, look, he's outrageous. He wants to get attention. So whatever. But they got to do what they got to do. Now, you said Trump. Now, weren't you on The Apprentice? Yeah. <laughs> what happened on there? Uh, I was on, I don't know, when that, when that, I didn't, I never watched The Apprentice, so I didn't really, I just know that I was on the, one of the last episodes of season, whatever. I think it was like 2000. your friendship with Don Jameson was it just from hitting the clubs and knowing you both had a common uh, you know mutual respect and love for metal or how did you guys become friends because I know you did meet the creeps and stuff like that later what how did that partnership start no Don was originally um, uh, he worked for MTV he was a producer on uh, when they had that on there was another show Kamikaze so he was working on MTV booking you know comedians for the comedy shows and he met me at a club in New York City, and we just started talking. He's like, "Oh man, I want to see you," you know, because uh, you know that's when I first started going to the city, you know, and, and in the clubs, I was casting the comic strips, so I was working there. And he goes, "Yeah, I want to come out and see you because we're looking for new comics for this show, you know, this comedy show we're doing." And then we became friends after that because he grew up in Jersey. He was like heavy metal, had long hair, 
same thing, you know. So it was like we had a similar background. We became friends, and then he started doing stand-up. He's like, man, I want to come to some of your comedy shows, see what it's like out there. And I was all nervous because I was still playing, like, shitty sports bars. I remember I played cheerleaders down in Philly. It was a strip club. Okay. And it was a comedy club connected to her. I think the Pickle Man booked it. Oh, God. <laughs> and so and he was like, I want to come to you this weekend. I'm like, this MTV executive is going to come my shitty fucking car. I don't even know if it's going to make it. And I'm playing across with I want him to think that I was doing really well because he booked me on the show. He goes, no, nah, I'll come down. I'm off this weekend. I'd like to just check out the show. So I'm thinking about doing stand-up. And of course, you know, he had a, you know, we hung out at the strip club. We did the show, and he's like, "Man, I'm going to get up there." He did it a couple times. He's like, "I'm going to start doing this." So I, I bring him as my opener, and then he got into it. Now, how did Meet the Creeps come about? Um, I don't know. You know, we just decided to do some like hidden camera stuff. Me and Jameson, you know, Jameson, you know, had the TV background, so he had, a, you know, he knew what what worked. He worked on the Tom Green show too later on and stuff. So. Uh, you know, we're always good with messing people, messing with people too. It was pretty much like an extension of the telemarketers. And we just started to, you know, do that. And we got it. We wound up getting a pile of a Comedy Central that didn't get picked up. Uh, so we just did the series on our own. We were putting them out. And we did it up at Comedy Central on a, a broadband channel a web, on their website that we did, a, you know, like two or three seasons on there for. And then, uh, you know, we did a pile for the network, but didn't get picked up. So you always got a lot of shit going on. Um, as I said, I listened this morning. I was just randomly, I was flipping around serious and I was on my phone. And I was, I always scrolled down the stations. And then your show on the Aussie network came up. How did that start up? It was, and then how do you pick, decide what, do you decide what music's going to be played? And, you know, how do you sit there and decide what you think would be make a good, good radio listening? Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, working on that metal show, you know, I, you know, I got the gig on, on there, on the, you know, the Hard Rock Heavy Metal channel. You know, I was one of the hosts there. And I thought I'd be perfect for one of the hosts on the, the TV show to be a DJ. And, I, you know, I started out DJing years ago. So, um, you know, I got a gig there just doing it once a week, a two-hour show, and I pick out the songs. I pick out the set list. I just go through my iPod and figure out what it, you know, will be. And I don't play any hits. I always play, like, deeper tracks. You know, everybody knows, you know, 27 million people have bought ACDC Back in Black. Everybody knows you shook me all night long, you know, and back in the song Back in Black. I'm not going to play those songs or Hell's Bells, you know, but I'll play something else off of there, like Rock and Roll, like Noise Pollution or something like that, where everybody knows that song, too. So that's the way I always approach it. Now, who are three of your favorite metal bands? Black Sabbath, ACDC, uh, Motorhead, probably. I'd say those are the top three. See, it's funny. I it's funny. I love I love ACDC, but in L.A., classic rock would just constantly K Rock and the other ones would just constantly play ACDC. And what sucked is, like you said, they would they would just play those certain songs. And after a while, man, it just starts killing it for you. You know, you're sitting there going, you know, no, you got the jack or anything like that. And it just pisses you off when you're a fan and you think that people constantly want to hear "You Shook Me All Night Long" or you know "Highway to Hell," which were great when they came out. But it's good that you play different tunes because people just get tired of the commercial metal. No, I know. I mean, you know, I would have held a huge album too because you know I'll play like the song called "Night," you know, like a Night Prowler off of there, or if you want blood, you got it. That song, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean that's why I took the gig. I said, look, I'm not going to just play a, a, a format, you know, whatever's in front of me. Okay, I got to play "Welcome to the Jungle." You shook me all night long and walked this way. I wasn't interested in that. I said, look, if I could pick out my songs. For a two-hour shift, I'll do. Then I'll, I'll do it. It's a lot more work for me. 
I got to go through it, but I don't care. And, you know, people seem to dig it because anyone that listens to that has all those old records. You know, the Van Halen records, I don't just play, you know, you know, Dance the Night Away and, you know, and you really got me. You know, I'll dig deep into, like, you know, in a simple rhyme off of Women and Children first, which everybody knows that song if you're a Van Halen song fan. So I'll play stuff like that. Now, you also have a podcast. Tell me about your podcast and when you started it. And I know you do your podcast live occasionally, I believe. Well, I know you've been on Joe's podcast live. But when did you start your podcast? And did you feel like because you liked radio and you, you were back in the day wanted to do radio, it's probably a perfect uh, venue for you? Yeah, I know. I started in 2011 when I started doing it. I just do it once a week. I just do, I do it at my house pretty much. I do it by myself most of the time. And I just rant about different stuff. You know, people send in, you know, I have an email where people send in shit that they know I would hate, you know, like bad Facebook posts and stupid t-shirts and dumb names, you know, and people take pictures of food on Instagram and shit, and I just rip it apart. People seem to like it. Now, do you have a lot of people sometimes that get pissed at you for your viewpoint, or have you had anyone that you've put in a poster or a post of or a Facebook post that has come back to you and said, hey, man, what the hell are you doing? That That's me. Um, I don't use names, so, you know, it's usually, I, I don't search it myself, like uh, some guy in Ohio is a fan of mine, goes, dude, look at this guy's Facebook post, you know, just, you know, whatever, you know, I, you know, like, all right, you know, uh, you know, uh, dear mother nature, go, go away, we don't like you anymore, you know what I mean, it's just like, oh, you know, really, so you think, if, if there's a mother nature, you think mother nature sort us, right. <laughs> you know, you know, I just got, you know, I looked through your Facebook friends and I, I didn't see Mother Nature, so I don't know how she would see this post. Unless somebody else that you're friends with knows Mother Nature, you can contact them and say, hey, someone's writing some shit about you. So I just do shit like that. And yeah, people, I don't care if people get po- get pissed. Don't listen to a podcast. I don't, no one's forced to listen to it. That's what's great about a podcast. If you don't like it, you just don't listen. You don't have, there's not a channel you, you got stuck on or something like that. You know, that's a specific thing where people got to go every week to or, you know, and listen to. So, and you can do whatever you want on it, which I love. It's just, and you could be as long as, you could be two hours or it could be 28 minutes. Right. Now, I want to talk about your, the, the simple man. Now, how'd you come up with the title and how did you pick the material you were going to do for that? And how long was the process of you doing a trial and error? Because I know like Joe was taping his special last week and then Thursday he was doing a run through and then Friday, you know, he recorded it, and then he said, of course, Saturday was a lot easier because the pressure was off of recording the special. How did you figure your material, and when did you start writing it, and what made you decide that it was time for another CD? Well, it was like two and a half years that worked on the material. You know, worked it at home, did it, and I just decided, you know, it was time, and it was about what I was going on in my life. You know, a simple man was basically like, you know, I'm just, I don't need all these distractions in my life. You know, that was the theme of the show. It's just like, you know, it, it, there was no distractions before and everyone got along fine in life. You know, you don't need it now. You know, every two seconds, somebody's got to be doing something or it's constant. You know, you got a phone in your hand and you got a text and do all this shit. So that was kind of the theme of the show. You know, and how I got married and had a kid and then moved to the suburbs. They still live right, you know, outside of New York City in a high rise. and You know, that whole thing. So that was pretty much the theme of, uh, you know, of that special. You know, it took me about, yeah, about two and a half years to work it and own it. Then I was ready and I shot it. I sat on the shelf for like a year. I was trying to get a deal. I was close to getting it a couple of different, uh, you know, places like a Netflix and a Comedy Central, but it, you know, shit fell apart. So I just released it on my own. It's, you know, at this point, it's better to own your stuff. Look, if, if 
Netflix is going to offer you $20 million to film a special. Of course, you got to take it. But, yeah, you know, most comics aren't at that level, and it's almost better to own your stuff because we're all with different streaming services now and satellite radio paying you with, you know, sound exchange going back and getting all that money. Whenever they play shit, it's good to own your stuff. You know, you just, you know, you get royalties on it. Now, where did you record it at? I recorded at uh, the George Street Playhouse in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And now, what made you choose that place? And was it was it because it's also because it was in New Jersey? Yeah, you know, the, um, yeah, because, you know, the one-man show I did, I did out in L.A. And this one, I just decided to do, you know, near my hometown where a lot of my family and friends can come to. And New Brunswick is pretty much where I started doing comedy. You know, it's a stress factory. So I just decided to do it in that town there. And it was a little theater, all like 500 people. It was perfect. Now, why did you ever move to L.A.? Or had, have you lived in L.A.? Or what? You always, you've always kept your New Jersey roots. And you've always, you know, been a proud New Jersey guy. Which, you know, I, I, it's funny. In L.A., you have to explain yourself about New Jersey. Because, you know, I grew up near Philadelphia. And that's where I live now. And people are always like, they, they don't get it. They, they think New Jersey is all joysy, joysy, what exit. They don't know actually what a beautiful state it is. But what, did you ever move to L.A.? Or did you just? No, I would go out, you know, I go out there for pilot season for the month of like February sometimes. I always hated L.A. I, it took me a while to like it. About 10 years ago, I started liking it. So I'd go out there for business whenever I needed to, and then I would just come back. I just was never really interested in it. I liked the New York club, the comedy club scene, and, you know, I don't know. Maybe I made a mistake. Who knows? But, um, you know, there was enough stuff around the New York area that I could keep me busy. You know, I worked on, you know, I went from going on, you know, working on Crank Yankers, a TV show, for four seasons to, you know, uh, the, you know, working on that metal show we pretty much a lot of times we filmed that out in New York the show is based out of New York we did it in LA a few times too but so I was always working in this area you know and working TV or doing stand-up so I'd go out there when needed you know I spend more time out there now I try to go out like once a month for like four or five days you know do some business go on some auditions and stuff like that but I don't know I just never really had an interest up to you know going out there I thought my act was a little too edgy for him. I'd go out there. I wouldn't do that well on stage. It's changed over the years now. You know, LA, I think the comedy's changed where you could be a lot more edgy over the last, like, 10 years. But before that, I mean, you know, they were like, whoa, why is this guy fucking so aggressive and angry? Now... You know, he put hair gel on my hair. So, right. you know, they were... Uh, it, it is... You know, I wasn't a pretty boy. It is different. It's so funny because, you know, you see now, you know, people are saying safe space comedy. And, you know, when we started out, it was pretty much, you know, balls to the wall. And the funny thing is, no one really got offended. And But we, we, we always seemed to have pretty good taste in our material. I mean, we weren't like, you know, we weren't just saying dick jokes to get laughs. We were doing dick jokes because they were funny dick jokes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, nobody... You know, 15, 20 years ago, like, you know, no one was like, oh, man, people were offended and, you know, uh, the comic club better give them money back. Like, you rarely heard any of those stories from anybody. It was never a problem. You know, sometimes the comedy club is like, hey, kind of keep it clean, you know, before the headline or don't curse too much or whatever. Oh, no, you never heard stories like that. Do you think it will ever revert back to those days or do no. you think we're just screwed? No, it's only going to get worse. And why is it's only it? gotten worse over the years where people get more and more offended, and it's only going to get worse with social media. Social media is not going to go away, so there's always going to be somebody calling out some joke that you said on stage. Someone's, look at Tracy Morgan when he got in trouble doing those gay jokes. You know, he's doing a theater with his own, you know, people coming to see him, 
and he's riffing on stage. You know, as a comic, you'll riff. If you're getting a laugh, you'll, you'll push it. You'll push it to another level. You'll say another line in there, even though you don't mean it. You know, and he's saying about something, you know, having a gay son. He's like, stand the motherfucker. You know, he's on a roll getting a laugh about his gay bit or whatever. And then he throws that in at the end. And someone decides to go on Facebook. Oh, you know, I'm not going to see Tracy Morgan anymore. He made fun of gay people and I'm gay. And he said he would stab his son if he was gay. Then catches wind. The next thing you know, he's on an apology tour with fucking, you know, the gay community saying how sorry he is and all the shit. So it's like, you know, it's not, and it's, it's only going to get, it's, it's still, it's never going to get better where people are going to go, yeah, too bad. You got offended too bad. Right. It's never going to be like that. Now, with social. Look what happened. Trump won the election and, and half the country is crying because right. they didn't get their way. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a bunch of babies out there. If they don't get their way, if they're, you know, they're self entitled, then if they, if they go to a comedy club and everything doesn't go their way, they're going to make sure they complain. Now, for you, because you are a recognizable figure, social media, you've ended up on TMZ and stuff like that. What is that like when you're, when you're someone, you know, you're just a, a New Jersey guy, you're a comic. I know when you went through your the last divorce and ended up on TMZ. What is that like? I mean, how do you deal with that? I mean, do you just sit there and go, Jesus Christ, cut me a break? Or what do you do? Yeah, I mean, you know, you would never think that that would be the case. Like, where, where is this coming from? But yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, I think, uh, you know, for being on Howard Stern, being a regular there, I think they have, you know, they're, they're TMZ, the people that run it are always fascinated with comics or anyone that goes on there. So, you know, I was go, I was on there for a long time. I did a Robin Quivers briefly. So, you know, I'm always on their radar. So when some shit goes down, it's like all of a sudden, you know, especially outside of Sirius, the Sirius building, the satellite, Sirius Satellite Radio in New York. TMZ is always out there because there's always different celebrities in there in, uh, you know, doing something in one of the studios that they get them on the way out. And then, or, or if you're in LA and stuff like that. So who knows? I mean, yeah, it's just weird. Like, really, I go, I just think, you know, a New Jersey club comic. I don't know why anyone cares about this <laughs> shit, but, you know, sometimes it's a slow news day. Now, you've done some acting too. Now, now, were you, you were, you were in Girls, right? Yeah, I had a little cameo in there where I punched out that, uh, whatever, the boyfriend, the tall dude. Now, how, the did, how did that come about? Because it's not like someone, I can't see millennials running down, chasing down Jim to be, was that an audition or did, was someone a fan or how did that come about? No, I auditioned for it. And, um, you know, they needed some like businessman to be walking down the street. That tall dude, I forget it, whoever it is, and Lena Dunham were like, you know, arguing coming down the street and he was like yelling at her and saying mean shit to her so i was just i get in a but you know and like like you know they had me dressed like in khakis and a butt down like i was a wall street dude and you know going hey dude leave her alone he's like fuck you fuck you we go back and forth and i knock him out on the street now do you ever walk away do you ever think your fans watch it and go man come on like because when you were in californication you you know you're playing someone who that's that's in the jim florentine character you know, that's, that's, that was, you know, but when you were doing that, do you think some of the people go, wait a second, man, Florentine and khakis, that's unheard of. Yeah, I know. Well, it was cool. I don't mind. I'll, I'll do something different. You know what I mean? I still get to punch the guy out. So right. it's still cool. <laughs> now, how many so, takes? So, uh, how many no, t- I mean, yeah, look, and that was a big thing, you know, when Judd Apatow executive produced that. So Judd saw the tape that the gym would be perfect for this. And now I'm on Judd Apatow's radar. You know what I mean? And then I wound up, you know, getting, getting, uh, you know, cast in Trainwreck, you know, that he, that he directed. Now, 
Are you friends with Amy? Because I know you've been on her show. Or, or did she, she help you get the parks? I know I think Keith Robinson's friends with her. Keith ended up in it. Tell ended up in it. A lot of you great New York comics ended up in the movie. Was that because you think because they knew she knew of your work? Because then you guys have worked together? Or how did that whole thing come about? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm friends with Amy. And I know her. And she, you know, she put me in her TV show when I was in, you know, a bunch of different episodes, you know, in, in the different seasons and stuff. So I was pretty much, you know, kind of like a semi-regular on his t- on our TV show. And then when she decided to do the movie, I don't know who made the decision, but they were like, hey, I think Jim would be perfect for this. You know, and Judd knew me from Girls, and, you know, I don't know who made the decision, but I got offered the role to be like, you know, one of them, like one-night stand guys that she throws out of her apartment. Now, do you want to act more? Are you, are you striving to do that? Or, or do you like being, you know, doing the podcast, hosting, doing stand-up? I mean, is acting something you want to really parlay into? Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in that. I, I would always like, you know, I always like doing that. I like doing a little, you know, a little everything to stand up the podcast and, and acting, you know, if a role comes around. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what kind of touring schedule do you hold these days? I mean, you know, you know, as we get older, you know, you can't, you can't go around as much as you used to. How do you book your gigs? Do you book certain shows, certain towns you want to do, or are you pretty much open to hitting the road a lot? No, I do like two weekends a month. I do like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, something like that. I'm away like eight days out of the month, and I'm home the rest of the month. So two weekends I'll work on the road. One weekend I'll work in New York City, and one weekend I take off. Now, do that's you, usually my schedule. Do you still really dig getting in, up on stage as much, or you know, over the years? You know, I mean, how did how do you how does your psyche keep going over the years? No, I like it. I do. I um. I've always liked being on, up, being up on stage. I've liked it. I've grown to like it more as I get older. You know, I just enjoy, you know, I, I just like, you know, performing and, you know, working new shit in and working on an act and always, you know, honing in and stuff like that and changing a few words and trying new jokes. To me, I, I like the whole process of building a set, so I still enjoy it a lot. Now, at what point in your career do you feel that you started started to be able to be more honest? I mean, was that just a few years back or just really bare your soul more but make it funny? Yeah, that's because I, I just said I got a, I got a lot to draw from why am I not talking about myself on stage? You know, and it's just like, you know, um, so it was easier for me and, I, and it, it's more personal and, and it, you know, it has, you know, the material means a lot more to me when it's a personal story and I'm talking about it because you just go right to that place in that moment when it happens. Now, any book deals before you? Or what? I mean, every comic seems to be writing a book. I know your, your buddy Norton wrote some books. Do you have any books coming out? Yeah, I do got a book coming out in the fall. It's basically, basically like a extension of my podcast, where I'm just, you know, it's basically transcribed from my podcast into a book where I'm just pitching about different stuff. So, yeah, I've been working on it for a couple of years, and it's eventually it's coming out sometime in the fall. Now, will that be in a, a publisher, or are you doing like what you usually do? No, I got a real publisher for this. I was going to put it out myself. I didn't get one, but I actually got a, a real, a real book deal. So now, what do they so, say? Do, yeah. they, do they sit there and say, "Okay, we need notes this day"? Or I mean, how does it working? Because you produce your own stuff usually, so you have the gamut. You run the gamut. What's it like working for a publisher? Well, I'm still in the process of you know uh, making some making some adjustments and some changes. But basically, you know, they just uh, you know they, they pretty much leave you alone. They're like, "All right, just write this. We're going to you know." write your book, send it to us, and, you know, we're going to, you know, go over it and just tell you what, you know, what we don't think should be in the book or whatever like that, and just kind of make some edits. But they're basically giving me, you know, with this company especially, they give you uh, a lot of freedom.
which is great. You know, you just give them some samples of what you're going to write each chapter about, and like, all right, perfect, we're in. Now, do you, did you have it all formatted in your head when you found out you were going to write a book? Did you pretty, pretty much know what you're going to put in, or is it a constant you're rewriting and also doing new stuff? No, nah, I mean, I pretty much, you know, I knew exactly what I was going to do. You know, between, right, you know, meeting with, like, um, you know, a book editor and knows how to put a book together. He's like, I just, well, you need need chapters on this. We went over all my materials, like, I can put two chapters of this, a chapter of this. You know, so an expert like that, and I'm like, all right, no problem, I can do that. I got plenty of material for that. So it just kind of gets put that way, put together that way. And that's what, you think is going to come out in the fall? Yeah, sometime in the fall. I don't know the release date, but yeah, it's definitely coming out by the end of the year. Now, do you have a title? Uh, yeah, but I gotta get a patent on it, so I can't okay. throw it out there yet. Any, any, it's new, a good title. Any new specials in the work for you, or? No, nah, just well, hope. Uh, yeah, I filmed uh, one that I'll probably put out. I don't know, sometime in a year or so. I, I, you know, right now I'm just I threw away all my material. I'm just starting from scratch, so working on a new set. But I, uh, I got a yes, yeah, a, a special probably. I don't know when it's gonna come out. It's sitting, sitting there. We'll see. So you you just scrapped it and now you start from the beginning. That must be that must be challenging. Yeah, I mean, look, when you go on on the road, you can't just go. Okay, I'm I got I'm just going to stand up there and just kind of riff. You know, you have to use you know some of your older material, but then as slowly newer stuff starts working, you take the older stuff out. You know, so if you're doing a 45 minute set, you can have 30 minutes of old material and 15 of new, and just slowly start taking the older stuff out. Right. Which you know that is that's one good thing when you're in that position where people you know that thirty minutes they're gonna be, they're gonna be gems they work so it's easier to put in the other stuff because it cushions the blow if it doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's not like you know, and if it's not good to fifteen minutes, then it'll be five minutes or whatever it is. So it's not going to really affect my set too much. But also, you know, I usually do you know, uh, you know, an air, you know, a city like every eighteen months. So by eighteen months later. You know, either people forgot that material, they don't remember it if they come back to see you again, or, you know, you have new shit anyway. Right. Over 18 months. Well, cool, man. Well, hey, man, I want to thank you for coming on. An hour always flies by. Uh, your, your website is jimflorentine.com. What's your Twitter? Uh, Mr. Jim Florentine on Twitter. And you tweet a lot? No. You don't tweet a lot? No, I don't, you know, it's, I, I, I do, you know, no, I don't, I don't really get into this. I try to stay away from social media as much as possible. I just plug dates here and there. I'll retweet shit and stuff like that. I don't, I don't, I don't need to. I don't need to write jokes for Twitter. I got to work on my act on stage. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I don't. I'm, I'm not fighting with people. I don't give a fuck what they think, whether you like the joke or not. You know what I mean? Like I don't. I, just, I don't know. It's not my thing. I got. I got a million things going on. You know, so I don't really have time to. You know, write a joke on Twitter and see the response to it. Right. Right. Well, people, check Jim's website out. You can find all his information there, links to his podcast, links to his the Aussie station show, everything. So follow him. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 600 episodes. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. I will get back to you. Uh, tell me what guests you want to hear. You know, I'm mixing it up. I'm getting actors, writers, comics, musicians, so i got to keep it fresh. So anyway, people, follow me, at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.